Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First, two riders in the Pittsfield area of Western Massachusetts with spinal injuries, Naomi Clark and Giovanni Lynch, interviewed by Berkshire Bike Path President Marjorie Cohen. My name is Naomi Clark. Um, I have a spinal cord injury. I'm paralyzed from the chest down. Uh, I had my accident in 2005 on an ATV accident. Um, so I grew up biking. I biked my whole life. Um, I didn't do like road cycling per se. It was just a lot of just, you know, biking all over the farm and, and on the roads and wherever. Um, so after my injury, um, I didn't cycle for several years and I was living in Arizona at the time. And I bumped into this guy at a beer festival of all places. And he was on this hand cycle and I could tell by looking at him that he was paralyzed. And so I was brave enough to go up to him and say, Hey, like, what is this contraption you're on? Like, tell me about it. (laughs) And so he happened to have a spare hand cycle and he gave me his phone number and said, come over sometime and and try it. It's going to change your life. And he was right. And so I got into hand cycling in 2008 and then ended up applying for a grant and getting my own hand cycle. And I've been hand cycling ever since. So that was a nice story. Was he a nice guy? Oh yeah. We're still friends. <laughs> yeah. He used to take me on like night bike rides in Arizona. Cause it was so hot. So we'd go out at like nine o'clock at night and we'd do like a 30 mile ride up into the mountains. It was intense. Giovanni, can you introduce yourself and tell us how you got into biking and sure. adapted bike, maybe bike before? Yeah, my name's Giovanni Lynch. Uh, I'm 41 now. Um, I, uh, I I grew up riding like BMX bikes around the neighborhood. You know, um, there there was a whole lot of us that, that would, you know, be all over the neighborhood on our bikes and stuff. Um, you know, I had a mountain bike growing up too. I lived over by Springside Park, so I could go up into the woods there and, and you know, ride all over basically. Um, but then I got paralyzed in a motorcycle accident in May of 2005. And um, I am also paralyzed from mid chest down. Um, I didn't really do anything active for a long time after that. Um, I was in a pretty deep depression for a while and um, substance abuse and uh, it was pretty dark. And then um, I started going to the support group that me and Naomi are a part of now. And um, they set up a a, uh, sample event where a dealer came and brought three different style adaptive bikes for people in the group to try out. And uh, I, I tried it and, and I thought this is, this could be good. You know, and um, I, I started a, uh, a fundraiser a couple weeks after that and was astonished with how fast I raised the money uh, to buy my first bike that was six years ago. Uh, and, and, and I've been riding, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, consistently ever since pretty much daily. 
Well, um, you know, you kind of hinted that you raised the money. Can you give people an idea of how much money this really costs? And that was oh, a lucky thing you did. And I want to hear about Naomi's grant, because I think people are concerned about what's the price. Sure. It, it's definitely cost prohibitive. Um, you know, an entry level adaptive arm bike is, you know, at least a couple grand, you know, a, a pretty good one's three, you know, and that, and that's entry level. That's. Well, you don't have entry level now. I've seen. No, no, my, <laughs> my How much is that bike? <laughs> yeah, no, no. My new bike was, was, um, about five times that, uh, <laughs> And that that was uh, paid for with a combination of money I had saved, um, a GoFundMe account, um, fundraiser that I raised online, and a grant from a foundation, the same one that Naomi got her grant through. Naomi, what was that place? So the that grant, it's the Kelly Brush Foundation. Um, they specifically give out grant money for adaptive equipment for people with spinal cord injuries. Um, there's a lot of different organizations out there, foundations, um, that give grant money for a lot of different disabilities. So my first hand cycle, I got a, a grant through the challenged athlete foundation, and they are not just spinal cord injury specific. They, any disability can apply for a grant through the challenged athlete foundation, which is fantastic. So that's how I was able to get my first bike. Um, the bike I have now was through a grant with the Kelly Brush Foundation. And the bike you have now, which is not the beginner introductory bike course. The, the, bike I, the bike I have now is a top end Force RX, which is a go-to racing hand cycle. So it's a lay down style. Uh, it's harder to transfer in and out of, but once you're in it, that baby flies. Well, your... that... go ahead, Giovanni. Uh, I just said, Naomi, what's your top speed on that? 52 oh. miles an hour. <laughs> well, Naomi is a racer and we're going to get back to that in a second. But, you know, you kind of mentioned one was an incline knot and your bikes are very different from each other. So I'm curious about how and who helps you find the right bike um, and where you got those bikes. You went you didn't go to your local bike shop. No. So <laughs> so for for me, it was bumping into that guy in Arizona. Um, and then going to the new style bike was, was just from the community, the community of vast majority of people that we know in the spinal cord injury community, um, networking really, um, everybody has their different styles of bikes that they like. And so through the Kelly brush foundation, I met a lot of other athletes and got to see all the other bikes. Um, and I didn't try the bike that I, I bought. I just went based off of the recommendations from athletes that I knew and trusted for years and they didn't lead me wrong. Um, but there are places if you want to try different hand cycles that you can go and try, but you have to be willing to travel. I believe the closest place is in Rhode Island. Is that correct? Is that where well, I said that group that came the other day to the um yeah so that was bike on so occasionally on. like you can contact them and set up an event where they come to an area 
with a lot of different hand cycles, which is a perfect way for people to try. Um, Mm -hmm. But if just a random person is like, hey, I want to check out adaptive bikes, you're going to have to be willing to to travel or put together. Right. Giovanni, where did you get your um, I got mine through the same company, Bike On in Rhode Island. Um, both of mine, I got through them. Um, the the first one I tried out, you know, like Naomi said, there's different types of, of hand cycles. You know, there's the lay down type for racing, and then there's the more upright style. And because I'm missing my left leg above the knee, the lay down style is is hard for me. I always go cockeyed. So I have, it's much better for me to be sitting upright, which I don't get the same kind of top speeds as her, but it it works just fine for me. Yeah, I see you, you're pretty fast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we were talking about fast and Naomi being fast. What do you see as the kind of accomplishments you've made in cycling? And how has it helped you physically? Um, well, I mean, for me personally, hand cycling is just one of the best ways that I can get cardio, uh, clear my head. So an immediate benefit is just the mental and physical aspect of it. You can't beat it. It's, it's the best antidepressant out there. Um, as far as accomplishments, uh, hands down, I became the the first female hand cyclist to cycle hundred miles in one day for the Kelly brush ride that they do every year. I did that last year. So that's my, that's my big accomplishment. It's a big accomplishment. Yeah. What is yours? A week where you ride every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I get out and I ride my bike just like you said, just about every day, about six days a week, I usually take a Sunday off just to let my arms and shoulders and back heal up. But um, the farthest I've gone in one ride was 45 and a half miles this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I went from my house up to Wakona Falls and then back down in, into Coltsville area and Pittsfield and then got on the bike trail and rolled the whole bike trail after that. Uh, you, um, you sounds like both of you are riding on trails and roads. And I'm wondering how secure you feel on roads because so many cyclists are complaining about drivers and bad relationships between bikers and drivers. I'm wondering what you guys are experiencing on the road. I would say that 98% of my rides are on the road. It's pretty rare that I'm on a bike trail just because of where I live. I'm up in the hills in Western Mass. I'm about an hour from Geo. Um, and so I'm on pretty much all back roads. So I feel really safe. It's not often that I see many cars. Um, and when I do, they, they give me a wide berth. Um, so I feel pretty secure. It's, it's not often that I'm in around, around traffic with that said, I've done a ride with geo and been in his area. And if I hadn't been with him, I probably would have been crapping my pants. It was super intimidating. So geo what's how is your experience on the roads? Um, yeah, I, I, I do ride more in, in, 
the, you know, I live right in the center of Pittsfield. So any, any direction I go on, I go on a main road, you know, whether it be route seven or, or route 20 or, or route eight going out to the bike trail. And then I'll ride the entire bike trail up to Adams and back. But, um, I, when I'm on the road, I, I ride with a, um, the Garmin radar to give me some notice, you know, um, I, I, I do, you know, because of how wide the bike is, I ride very close to the curb and that, you know, my right tire very close to the curb means my left tire is still 20 inches off it, you know? So, um, I, I try and stay as safe as possible. I've only had one jerk in the last year of riding on the roads. So I, I think that's pretty good. That is pretty good. We and also have flags on our bike, which I think helps. Like, yeah, it's not as cool, but we're pretty low to the ground. So we each have a flag on our bike. And then I also have bright flashing lights. All yeah. yeah, that Garmin radar has got a very bright light on it. And, and I have a light on my flagpole and I'm always in high vis. Like I, I do everything I can to be seen. And I think all of us cyclists need to do those things. The garment thing that you're indicating just for people listening tells you if a car is coming up behind you, right? Yes, it gives you- It's a you, great device. Um, it, it gives you up to about uh, an eight second warning on a main road if you're on a straightaway. And, and eight seconds is pretty substantial. Plus it gives you a visual readout on your phone when the car is getting closer and if it's moving extremely fast or normal speed. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. So there, there's a couple, and it gives you audio uh, uh, keys. Okay, ding, ding, there's a car coming. It's coming up behind you. And then once it passes, it gives you a little bloop sound, you know, to let you know everything's all clear. Well, I'm glad that you're both feeling safe and you have all these devices. What advice would you give to other people who might want to consider biking, kind of getting depressed, have had an injury that's limiting their social life, their existence, you know that place. Um, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, I, I would say, you know, uh, maybe search out somebody who might be able to help you locally and if there isn't any then there are resources online you know people who can give you good advice uh hand cycling groups spinal cord injury groups um you know it, and, and there there's a lot of people out there who can give some really good advice on you know how to how to keep a fundraiser in somebody's feed and and you know, when I did my first fundraiser, I promised to post updates online all the time so that people could see that their their donation wasn't going to waste. And I've stuck with that for six years now. You know, I post every ride. Do you want to do a plug for your support group? <laughs> um, sure. Uh, we um, are Berkshire County Spinal Cord Injury Support Group. Uh, we meet at BMC on the first Thursday of every month. Uh, we also do a weekly Zoom meeting. We have a Facebook page if you would like to join or message us. 
uh, we we keep pretty uh, close eye on that. Well, I think that too would be great for some of our listeners who are getting hesitant about getting involved in this. Um, any advice from you, Naomi? Um, I would say, you know, it's so easy when you're feeling discouraged and uh, depressed to just not do it. And people always will ask me, you know, how do I stay motivated? And I get out there and I do these bike rides that are so many miles. And honestly, I never want to get on my bike and go bike 15 miles. I'm never like super excited about getting out there and climbing those hills. But every single time I do, I feel so much better, even within that first mile, that I feel like the best advice I can give is just get out there. Get out there. Use your freedom. It it just, it makes such a huge difference. And there are resources out there. You just have to be willing to ask for help. Great advice. Thank you both for your time and your good advice and your spirit rejuvenates everybody who comes near you. So I know I'll see Gio on the trail and I'm hoping that you'll be getting out soon too. Maybe I'll come pick apples. There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you. Having us. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Next, Jerome Horn in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Jerome Horn and I do work in the field of urban planning and transportation. I work for Transit Center, which is a private foundation that focuses on national transit advocacy, policy, and research. And I am the director of transit leadership development. And you have thoughts about bikes. I have lots of thoughts about bikes. Yes. I've seen you tweet some of them. I always want to generate discourse because I think it's important to get people talking about and thinking about these different subjects. You're looking at how bikes fit into the transit picture? Yeah. For me personally, I am very much a person that wants to see a world or really a US where we go from car required to car optional. And I think bikes have a big part to play in that ecosystem and especially bikes being used as a legitimate method of transportation for people to get from one place to another, but also as an extension and an integration with transit and other forms of micromobility. I think if you study this subject, it's probably because you already came to a conclusion. It does seem like there's a consensus among everybody who knows about transit that you got to do something about cars and you need bikes and you need public transportation. Absolutely. As I said, it is an ecosystem that works together. I think a lot of times when people think about transportation, we're not necessarily thinking about it as a comprehensive network. Maybe it's not spoken that way. And generally across the entire United States, the reality is most people drive. And I think a lot of people drive because either they have to, there aren't really viable options, or that's all they know. They don't even know another reality could be possible. And so I think it's really important to think about, yeah, there's a place and a space for driving, but there's also a place and a space for biking and walking and taking transit. A couple of topics that you might be interested in talking about. One is rules for bikes versus cars. Bikes range anywhere from maybe the lightest carbon frames. I don't remember how light they are, but 10, 12, 15 pounds and got other bikes, steel frame. They're quite a bit heavier, e-bikes, 60, 70 pounds, but 
the forces of gravity and inertia with a car that weighs anywhere from two to four tons, I think it's a very different situation than when you're on a bike. Oftentimes, you'll hear folks that are centered around driving say, oh, these cyclists, they always break the rules, they run through lights, they don't yield. And I think a lot of people have trouble understanding about the reality of when you're using one type of vehicle versus another. So there's what we call the Idaho stop. And this is sort of when you come up to a stop sign or red light, you kind of just slow down, you look, and then you keep rolling through when you're on a bike. And part of this is for bikes, because it takes a lot of energy to get up to speed, it's safer for the cyclists to go through that intersection if it's clear and get out of the way of cars rather than coming to a full stop and then having to power up again and try to accelerate with traffic is really difficult. But yeah, really the differences in the vehicle types and how much they weigh. Yeah, if someone gets hit by a bike, they could get injured, but most likely they're not going to die. And if someone gets hit by a car, that's a very different story. And therefore, we need to think about them in different contexts. Anti-bike people will come on Twitter and say, well, what about bikes going through stop signs? And is that partly why you mentioned this? Yes. We hear that rhetoric all the time. And as someone who did drive, I owned a car up until last year before I moved to New York City. Nothing I ever gloated about, but understanding where drivers are coming from, I can understand why they would say such a thing. But also being someone who is now an avid urban cyclist or bike rider, you really have to understand the different realities that exist. But yeah, we hear this all the time. Bikers break the rules. Now, there is probably a small percentage of people on bikes that may behave in a way that's unpredictable. But I think that is a small minority of people, but it's enough that it could be a problem where there are sometimes, even when I'm biking, there are people flying by and doing things that I'm like, oh, I don't know where you're going to go left, where you're turning, I'm not sure. So I do think generally we have some responsibility to be as visible and predictable to drivers as we can be when we're biking. But by and large, it is the dangerous design of roads and the weight of cars that are really causing the damage. We're seeing an ever-increasing number of vehicular deaths being caused by cars hitting pedestrians and or people on bikes. And it's a really disturbing trend as we see cars continuing to get bigger and heavier. And I feel like when you point this stuff out, some people's reaction is you're superior, self-righteous. There can be multiple realities to how people move about in their communities. And it's just because we've not really prioritized walking, cycling, or transit in the way that it could be in most of the country. I think it is difficult for a lot of people to imagine that people bike to actually commute from one place to another. A lot of people see, oh, biking is a recreational activity, something people do for fun. And yeah, it is, but also people are legitimately going to and from work or to doctor's appointments or things like that. Let's go to the future of the bike lane and what vehicles should be on them. Bike lanes come in different sizes and shapes and forms, but typically they're three, four feet wide. And now that we have so many forms of what we call micro-mobility, so whether it's a bike, an e-bike, an electric scooter, we see these hoverboard things that people are riding around and then electric mopeds. And this conversation kind of comes up of what is a bike lane intended for? What vehicles should be on them? And what speed should they be operating at? And especially in a place like New York City, where there is a lot of people moving around on different smaller electric vehicles, you sometimes wonder for a safety standpoint and a vehicle standpoint, whether or not we should be thinking about what the bike lane might evolve to be. Because it's not just bikes anymore. So should we call it a bike lane? And should we widen the lane? Should it be wide enough? A six feet wide, seven feet, eight feet wide. I think an average car lane is like 11 to 12 feet wide. 
And I bring this up because I think it's important to understand if we're going to have a future that relies more on people using bikes and e-bikes, that we really think about this because the average cyclist pedals along at like 12 miles per hour, something like that, nine to 12 miles per hour. But if you have someone on an e-bike going by at 28 miles per hour, 30 or 35, 40 on some of these smaller electric vehicles, should those two things be in the same lane? And I think that's just a general thought that I have tossed out there. And I don't know if we have the real answer yet, but it's a conversation piece that I've been bringing up lately. A lot of people are complaining about e-bikes being dangerous. Certainly the increased speed should factor in, but exactly how we tackle that problem, I think is something for us to be thinking about right now. In New York City, we have a great program where a lot of food delivery service workers were able to get e-bikes and get around. And I think that's fantastic. But at the same time, when people fly past you and you didn't even hear them or see them coming, or we see people riding down the sidewalk going 30 miles per hour, that is something that we need to sort out just to make sure that pedestrians have a place where they feel like, oh, okay, as a pedestrian, I can exist and walk here and not worry if an e-bike is going to fly by and run me down or startle me. A lot of people are just all about EVs and we do absolutely need to switch from gas to EV. But most bike advocates and others will say that you still need to reduce the amount of car trips. EVs alone are not going to save us. And I think there's other implication and externalities that we haven't thought about of the mining of precious minerals to get the batteries. And then what do we do when we dispose of the batteries? EVs are in some cases heavier than their combustion engine cousins. So I do think that you almost can joke that the United States climate policy is everyone gets an EV, therefore problem solved, right? When the power source is one part of the problem, but also where is that electricity coming from? We need to answer that. And then as you said, electric cars are still cars, right? One of the biggest problems of cars is space and the space that we have dedicated to them in our communities through the size of roads or parking lots, parking garages. There's a lot of space that has been given up to these vehicles that are among the least efficient of moving lots of people. And so a lot of us in the urbanist circles feel that the only way we're really going to get GHG greenhouse gas emissions down is that we have to give people other options so that a car is not the only viable way of getting around because if we just replace every combustion engine with an electric one, that's only really solving part of the problem and probably creating some other problems we didn't think about. Why doesn't EVs also refer to electric bikes? That's a great question, right? Because yeah, a bike is an electric vehicle of sorts. Golf carts are EVs. So yeah, great question. That's a conversation piece that more people should bring up. Better that people should have little e-bike batteries and use that amount of energy than have huge electric vehicles and still be the only person in them. So what are your thoughts on these e-bike rebates that are starting to happen? Do you think we should just give everybody an e-bike? Just do it? Yes, I'd much rather give everyone an e-bike than any discounts on electric cars. Yeah, I think it's great. We've seen a few cities, most notably Denver, recently started a program where certain residents, depending on their income, could get $400 off. And I think it increased depending on your income level. And it was such a popular program that they had to shut it down for a few months because they were overwhelmed with application. Actually, the program was 400 rebate for regular e-bikes and additional 500 for cargo e-bikes. And depending on people's income levels, they could qualify for an even higher rebate of up to 1,200. So yeah, seems to be a remarkably successful program. And it just demonstrates that there's a demand and desire out there. And I'm sure if other cities did something similar, we'd see the same type of thing happen, which was a national program. 
Of course, part of this too is we have to make sure the infrastructure is there too. It's one thing to give a person a bike or an e-bike, but if there's not a safe place to bike or a place that feels comfortable or low stress to bike, that's another piece that we have to solve. But I certainly think that we should absolutely be offering more e-bike rebate program. So do you think that there is a consensus on what kind of infrastructure we do need? I'm not sure if there is a consensus at large among the general population or even elected officials necessarily. I think in urbanist circles, there's more of a consensus. I think it gets back to people just not understanding or not knowing what we could use the street for and how the street could be reimagined. I always think it's funny when you see these old black and white clips from the turn of the last century and a little bit before of cities and they're bustling and the streets are full of horses and horse manure, (laughs) bikes, trolleys, people walking, early forms of vehicles. And it seems like organized chaos, but still organized somehow. And really, when we think about what we call complete streets or redesigning a street that is primarily geared towards cars to prioritize pedestrians and bikes in transit, it's almost like we're sort of going back in time going, oh yeah, the street used to be a space for multiple ways of getting around and almost a communal-like space. I say that to say that I think that it's going to take a bit more education for the general population and even elected officials to reach consensus about what a street should look like and the type of infrastructure design that we should have moving forward. What I will say about Pete Buttigieg, I think it's good to have a transportation secretary that is at least very excited about the subject matter and talking about it in a way that no one has previously Obviously, we want to see action to back up that talk, but talking about it and being explicit about our transportation network and infrastructure, I think, is an important first step. I'm glad to see a DOT secretary who is visibly and verbally excited about what they're doing. Obviously, he has higher ambitions, but if it results in us having better transportation infrastructure, then I'm all for it. He has used bike share a few times in DC, even though I think his security detail isn't happy about that. I think he even wanted to take Metro to work and they were like, yeah, we can't do that. So it's unfortunate. I don't know. I've seen a lot of tweets about how all public officials should have to take public transportation. Yeah. Many of them have probably been for me. I think it makes such a difference. And even when it comes to bikes, I think that if elected officials spent more time walking down their streets, biking, if they're able to bike and taking transit... It just gives you a different perspective on the community in a way that you cannot get when you're either driving yourself or even being driven. There is something about the perspective of being a pedestrian or a cyclist and interacting. You're able to notice more about what's going on down on the street. And I think we want to see more electeds. Michelle Wu, mayor of Boston, appears to be very exciting, taking transit very often, even before she was mayor and biking as well. And we think that's kind of playing out a little bit in some of the policies she's trying to move forward in the city of Boston. So yeah, elected officials that get around on transit, it really makes a difference. There's another Maryland state delegate, Robin Lewis. Her district is in Baltimore City somewhere, but she does not own a car. And she commutes this very roundabout way to Annapolis, to the state house when they're in session. But her perspective and what she thinks about the community is really shaped by not owning a car and biking around the city. And you can really tell that she's someone who's dedicated to seeing better bike infrastructure and better transit in her community. That's great. You live in Brooklyn, right? Yes. I live in Flatbush, Brooklyn. How's that for biking? I live on the southern border of Prospect Park, so I have a nice parking-protected two-way bike lane, 
And I can easily enter in the park and use that to get to whether it's Ocean Parkway, Eastern Parkway, or connect to some of the other bike lanes in Brooklyn. So for me, where I live in particular, it's pretty good. But there are some gaps definitely in the cycle network in the city as a whole, particularly in central Brooklyn. There could be more separated protected lanes. We think about Flatbush Avenue, which is a very busy street. I think pre-COVID, they saw about 180,000 riders on the buses alone. And I'm sure if we could reimagine that street for dedicated bus lanes and bike lanes, it'd be transformational. But we'll see what happens there. Can you think of a recent bike joy or something general that you can share with us? The concept of experiencing joy is really important in life. We have a lot of things that don't bring us joy now. And biking for me, it is therapy, it's joy, exercise, it's discovery. And I find it to be very fascinating. I bike more here in New York City than I ever biked in Indianapolis, despite having some really great infrastructure in Indianapolis and it being a much lower stress bike environment. But I think part of the reason I bike more here is because the city is way more interesting. There's always something new to see and it's a great way to discover. And so one of my moments of joy was I bought a new bike at the beginning of the summer and I set this goal. I want to bike 500 miles this summer. And today on September 2nd, I'm at 640 miles and summer officially ends on September 21st. So I'm kind of like, all right, can we push it to 800? So when I hit that goal a week or so ago, that was exciting. And I just think that the joy for me is riding around and seeing the city in a different way and being able to randomly say, oh, you know what? I'm going to turn down this side street today and see what I find. Jerome Horn, Director of Transit Leadership Development at Transit Center. Thank you for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now we hear from lifetime bike builder Craig Caffey and Bike Talk co-host Taylor Nichols from Los Angeles, California. Hi, everybody. I'm Taylor Nichols, and this is Bike Talk. We have a special guest today. A couple weeks ago, we interviewed a bicycle collector, a guy named Aaron Lipstadt, and he showed us some pictures of and talked a lot about a bike builder named Craig Caffey. And lucky for us, Craig is our guest today. Craig, welcome to Bike Talk. Oh, thanks for having me. I know a little bit about your background, but I wondered if you could tell the listeners a little bit about how you got started building bikes. It's kind of an unusual craft anyways. And you're also kind of known for being one of the first people to build carbon bikes. Greg LeMond, who I think most people know is the winner of the Tour de France three times and used some of your bikes when he was ending his career in the early 90s. And I think that kind of got you going. So if you could give us a quick wrap up of how you got started. Sure. Yeah. I started building bikes after I had a major bike accident in East Boston, where I crashed in a Schwinn Varsity and bent the down tube in the fork so bad I couldn't repair it. And I was working at a company building carbon fiber rowing shells called Composite Engineering out in West Concord. And at the time, I had thought about making a carbon fiber bicycle simply because I worked at a shop that had carbon fiber tubes, and I actually made the tubes on a giant braider. So that bike crash was the impetus to get me to actually do that project and try to build myself a frame. So I did, and the frame worked, and people thought it was the coolest thing. They were just amazed at how light it was, yet it was still fairly stiff. So... I wasn't much of a biker. I had been a bike messenger in New York during college at art school and Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing that just professionally, shall we say. I rode my bike eight hours a day. So I can say I was a professional cyclist, but only for bike messengering. (laughs) 
wasn't really into racing that much, more for utility. So I did actually commute on my bike and the carbon fiber was robust and comfortable. And I thought, wow, I should build more of these. People were asking me to build them a frame and what would it take and how much would I charge? And so I built one for my girlfriend and then I built one for another guy and another guy. So finally, I just decided to quit my job and move out to California and start a bike company. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that was in 1988. And carbon fiber, of course, at the time was rare and very few people were building in it. And I had a unique method of building carbon fiber frames from tubes using carbon fiber wrapped lugs or joints. And that allowed me to do custom geometry frames. And so I learned about that before I left for California. I audited classes at MIT and got a MIT library card and basically read everything I could about bicycle design and geometry and vehicle dynamics and everything I could soak up and moved out to California and started building bikes, custom bikes in particular, a niche. Right. And that's what attracted Greg Lamont. So he wasn't terribly satisfied with the bikes they had, the TVT carbon tubing to aluminum lug bikes. They were trying to do custom geometry, but they had some issues and they were really looking for another source. So the U.S. rep for Time Pedals, who sponsored Greg, stumbled across our shop south of market in San Francisco and said, oh, you've got to send one of these frames over to Greg's dad in Reno. He covered us, shall we say. Right, right. So we sent a frame off to Bob Lamond over in Reno, and he immediately loved the look of it. He sent a picture of it to Greg, and Greg was like, let's get one. Let's try it out. So very quickly, we started building Greg's bike, which I have in the next room here. Wow. So that first bike was very quick to build, shall we say, and we sent it off to France, and he test rode it and thought it was amazing. So... He ordered 18 of them for the whole team. Wow. That's a jump start for your business, eh? Oh, yeah. That's kind of the top. It took a few years to get to that point. It was basically the beginning of the 1991 season. So from 88 to 91, we were a startup just out of the garage that I was renting in San Francisco. So it was a bit rough at the beginning, but with Greg's endorsement, effectively, that really put us on the map and got us a ton of attention. For some reason, I always thought you were a mountain bike guy. And I guess that's just because I knew that your shop was in Santa Cruz, or at least it is in Santa Cruz now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it was the racing that got you started. Yeah, we actually did mountain bikes before Greg was riding the road bikes. We did actually develop an elevated chainstay carbon fiber mountain bike. And it wasn't terribly successful because the elevated chainstay thing fell out of favor and then all the headsets went from inch to inch and an eighth. And so things started changing a lot in the mountain bike world. So we were overwhelmed with demand on the road bike side. So we kind of dropped that for a while, but we picked it up years later. Right. I love your design. It's a Nautilus shell. And your company is called Calfi Design. And not only are you in bike shops, but you're also in the San Jose Museum of Art, which I saw, which is kind of cool. What was that? Yeah, that was an art piece that I was invited to participate in that exhibition. Mainly people who are doing industrial design, product design, Mm -hmm. are invited to do a fine art piece for that show based on another fine artist who's in their collection. So we could select which one we wanted to do. 
and I found a piece that looked like a bicycle wheel at first glance. It was a very circular round thing, and it looked really cool in the photo. Turns out it was actually a sculpture, and it was a very interactive thing with the light and everything. So I had to actually kind of start upping my game on the sculpture and get my piece more interactive in 3D. Right. Which is ironic because I studied sculpture at Pratt and worked as an apprentice to a sculptor in New York for a couple of years. But I kind of dropped the fine art thing and went into industrial design. I've always thought bikes are major works of art anyways. I just love looking at them. And I've always thought they should just be up on the wall most of the time anyways. I want to jump ahead a little bit because I want to make sure we have time to get to the stuff that you're doing in Africa, which I think is so amazing. What made you think about bamboo as a bicycle frame material? Well, the initial impetus was to come up with a gimmicky bike to draw attention at the bike trade show at Interbike. Right. There had been other people drawing attention to themselves with weird bikes made out of beer cans or just something goofy that got right. photos in the magazine. But I wanted to do something that actually rode well as well. I didn't want something that was unrideable. I wanted something interesting but different. So I came up with the bamboo because it was growing behind our shop in Santa Cruz. Right. And my dog was chewing on a piece of bamboo and it's a pit bull lab mix. And I thought, oh, for sure, bamboo is just going to be crushed and splintered. But it was amazingly tough. And so I got to thinking, wow, I could probably make a bike out of this stuff. Wow. And I heard that bamboo bikes existed back in the 1890s. Some companies were building them, but they didn't know how to join them properly. They were glued into metal lugs and pinned and screwed a little bit somehow. And obviously it didn't work. So I thought, well, maybe I can use my fiber wrapping technique on bamboo and make a decent looking bike. So I did. And that worked out really well. I got the attention, got a quarter page in Bicycling Magazine. Wow. So that worked. <laughs> Achieved that goal. Yeah, but the yeah. bike actually was rideable and very smooth. And I realized at the time that, wow, I'm kind of onto something here. This is the ultimate way to join bamboo. And that's why we haven't seen bamboo bikes for 100 years. So I started building them just as a goofy thing that people wanted to try and tested them a fair amount for about five years. We built them without really selling them. And then one of our dealers wanted to get one for his wife, who's from Japan, where they kind of accept bamboo more for structure and appreciate it for aesthetic reasons. So he got a bike for her and she went on their local Saturday rides and became the center of attention. And then she became a regular on the rides, which was the goal that he had for his wife <laughs> to get her to ride more often. Sure, of course. So same story, getting attention because it's yeah. different. Yeah. And then another guy, Ken Runyon, as an age grouper in Ironman distance triathlon, and he ordered one as a training bike. But he found that he was actually faster on his training bike than his carbon frame that we built for him that was two pounds lighter. And he said, why am I faster on this bamboo bike? And I said, it's probably the vibration damping is preserving your muscles. You're getting less fatigued. And towards the end of your 100-mile ride, you have more energy for the run. He said, that's exactly what the numbers say, because he's a data junkie and would chart his heart rate and all kinds of stuff. So he decided to race on the bike as well, the Ironman, and wow. did fairly well as an age grouper. 
So that got the bamboo bike some legitimacy and people started buying it because they liked it for long distance riding. It's also cool looking. I really like the way it looks. The tubes are a little bit fatter. They're almost kind of like gravel bike tubes. They're a little fatter. Bamboo isn't very stiff, so you have to go a little bigger diameter and thicker wall. Then it becomes a proper stiffness. And just so the listeners understand, the problem was how to join all of those tubes at the bottom bracket, at the headset, at the seat stay area. I'm not sure what you call what the seat cluster, the seat cluster. And so you use the carbon almost like lashing, like a Boy Scout would lash a lean-to together, but you did it with carbon. That's right. We started with carbon, but we found that carbon was very different from bamboo. And similar to how aluminum and carbon didn't get along when people tried gluing it together, we found that bamboo and carbon didn't have the same expansion and contraction with changes of temperature. Bamboo would change when it dried further. It would shrink away from the carbon, which didn't move at all. So we had some issues with that. So we switched to hemp fiber and even got into plant-based epoxies. So it became a really green product, which, of course, is the other reason people buy bamboo bikes, not just for the superior comfort, but it's a very green product. Right. And that kind of brings us to the African efforts. The cool thing about bamboo is it grows out of the ground as a round tube. And it grows like a weed also. It just multiplies. Yeah, it's very common over most of the world. Not many people think of Africa as a place with lots of bamboo, but it actually does have a lot of bamboo. And I had traveled in Africa in the early 80s, just packing and traveling to see the world as an art student. And I noticed they had a lot of bamboo there and I didn't have any worries about visiting Africa. I was treated really well when I went there and I thought, oh, I should bring this idea to Africa and see if they want to get into building bamboo bikes. Where did you go? What region? The first trip to Africa in the 80s was pretty much straight across the whole continent. I traveled by sailboat down through the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, landed in Mombasa, Kenya, and then went straight across the center of the continent to Cameroon. Wow. But later, when I went back to try bamboo, I researched where in Africa do they have great bicycle projects. And I ran into Village Bicycle Project in Ghana. So I worked with David Peckham there to find people who wanted to learn how to build bamboo bikes and work with his mechanics training program to do the rest of it. So I didn't want to tackle the whole problem of mechanics training. So I found Bill's Bicycle Project and they were already networked into a bunch of people who appreciated bikes. There was a whole supply chain of used bike parts to work with. And I found people who were really motivated and willing to build frames out of bamboo. Now, at first, it was a bit difficult because they wanted steel frame building and metal and big brands. Just like anyone else, they want to go up in life and have a BMW or whatever. (laughs) So it was a little tricky to get across that. But once they figured out that they could actually build something useful with bamboo and it would last a long time, then they really got into it. So the folks in Ghana are now exporting their bikes to Europe, into Germany and Holland. And we've got some that we brought in here. I also taught people in Uganda, and they're making a lot of custom frames there. I got hooked up with bike racing teams there, and they use them for racing. So it's grown. I've gone to Liberia with the project, to Zambia, and also in the Congo for cargo bikes in the Congo. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, Yeah, so it's been kind of a really fun ride since 2006 when I started, and it's really evolved and developed quite a bit. 
And it sounds like it's turned into a real business venture too for them that they're able to then export their product all over the world, it sounds like. That's right. It's created jobs. The folks in Ghana are special because they had some issues with poaching. Poachers basically killing all the wildlife. So they wanted to find alternate employment for them. And this group that helped sponsor the first training there set me up with some some guys that wanted to find alternate employment for the poachers. So we effectively did that. And I'm not sure how effective it was in terms of the animal populations, but definitely succeeded in employing people. Well, even taking one poacher off the field is valuable. I wrote an article a while ago called 50 Pounds of Love about how important bicycle transport is in Africa because so many of the roads are not paved and so many of the people are still spread out that a bicycle is really a game changer for a lot of those people, for social service, medical services, for people who are trying to get to fresh water and to food and things like that. So it really sounds amazing. And you did it really just on a whim. It sounds like you just went there and said, this could work. And someone picked up the slack and you ran from there. Yeah, it started just as a notice on our website about opportunities, job opportunities, working at Cal, and then the opportunity to help fund a feasibility study. And Columbia University came through with the first visit, funding for that. And that got us launched in Ghana. But we parted ways because we had two different philosophies on how to approach bringing bamboo bikes to Africa. I don't want to get too far into that, but it's interesting getting into development work in in developing countries. There's a whole bunch of progress that's been made in the past, I'd say, 10 years on doing projects that are really effective, Right. where previous projects have been much less effective. Right. I've often thought that same kind of philosophy would work in a city like Los Angeles, where there's a very large unhoused population and they can use and need bicycles for their substance and they end up collecting five or 10 frames and parts of bikes and none of them quite work. But if we had a way to train some of the unhoused population to fix bikes and use bikes, that would be a very advantageous thing for them. Yeah. The guy I did a project in Zambia with, Daryl Funk, who's also a frame builder, he did some work in LA with the homeless population and bikes. He's been very active in that. And now he's in Uganda working with people there. I was going to write his name down, <laughs> but if he's in Africa, maybe yeah. he's too far away. But you were the innovator of the carbon bike and the bamboo bike. What's next? Well, lately we've been doing a lot of electrofits, which is retrofitting bikes with electric assist, which has been interesting because there's a whole lot of really nice bikes hanging in people's garages. Yeah. And it's very easy to retrofit them into a high quality electric assist bike. Are you changing the rear hub and putting the power there? We're mostly working with hub motors, yeah, front or rear. Right. And just being able to take someone's bike, it might be a really nice older Colnago or a Merlin or any of these beautiful bikes from years ago that aren't really being ridden much and giving them a whole new life. Yeah. And it's been wonderful to keep those bikes on the road and get people who used to ride back in the saddle and and back out there. And they're having so much fun with it. Some of them may go to another brand new e-bike after trying it with their older bike, but I've just been finding a lot of satisfaction getting more people out on the road and and keeping old bikes from just getting trashed. Sitting there, right? Well, I definitely think e-bikes are gonna be a real game changer, especially in cities. You can commute two or three miles in work clothes and not have to worry about sweating or a hill or something like that. 
Yeah. You, you also make e-bikes which are bamboo, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. Doing all kinds of from the ground up e-bikes, just brand new bikes. The other thing we do a lot of is design work for other companies. And right now we're working with Archimoto, who's known for their FUV, their fun utility vehicle, which is a large three-wheeled motorcycle. But now we're doing a three-wheeled leaning e-bike, which has got a very interesting drivetrain where it doesn't have a chain or a belt. The cranks are charging a battery, and then the battery drives the wheels. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a really cool project that we're doing a high-end carbon fiber version of that if you take it for a test ride, you'll just be amazed at this thing. It's a crank forward design, super comfortable, super accessible to pretty much anyone. Very comfortable seat and just gets you from point A to point B in real style. What does crank forward mean? That's sort of a semi-recumbent. It's not full recumbent, but it's not full upright. It's kind of where the cranks are forward. Okay. Yeah. The Ram. Like a lazy boy in the or something like that. Yeah. It's super comfortable. The muscle groups are not the same as a regular cyclist uses. So if you're a cyclist and you jump into that, you won't feel quite as strong. But if you're a new cyclist, it'll be very welcoming. Great. Great. Well, Craig, thanks for all you've done for the world of bicycles. And thanks for taking the time on Bike Talk. Can you quickly give us some of your social media data so people know how to reach you or follow you or find out more about Calfi Design? Yeah, we're on Instagram and Facebook, and our website, of course, has all those links, calfidesign.com. And yeah, we're definitely active and out there. Come check us out. And that's Calfi, C-A-L-F-E-E, design, not a Santa Cruz, California. You got it. Craig Calfi, thanks very much. Thank you. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around.